0: I'm your host, David Nage, this is Baselayer, where institutional investors come to learn about crypto. The views, information or opinions expressed during the Base Layer podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of ARCA, where David Nage is a principal. ARCA is not responsible and does not verify the accuracy of any of the information contained in the podcast series available for listening. The primary purpose of this podcast series is to educate and inform. The podcast series does not constitute financial advice or other professional advice or services. Please do your own research. This podcast is presented by BlockWorks Group. One of the best digital asset event and media production companies that i know of for exclusive content and events that provide insight into digital assets visit them at blockworksgroup.io you won't be disappointed this is david and this is your new episode of base layer and it's a real privilege and an honor to have josh wolf with me today josh is the co-founder and managing partner at Lux capital Lux Capital, in my opinion, is probably one of the premier investment firms out there that is focusing on innovation of tomorrow. Actually, their mission statement is investing in emerging science and technology ventures at the outermost edges of what is possible. And Josh is someone that I have been very closely watching for years as a family office investor. And so, if you don't know about Lux, you know, please go look into what they're doing there. It is special. Josh, thank you for coming on Layer today. How are
1: you? I'm doing great. It's good to be with you. And uh, yeah, delighted to get into it.
0: Awesome. And so there's a bunch of things that we want to talk about today. Um, There's a lot going on in the world. Obviously, we've been dealing with a global pandemic. We've been seeing social upheaval and so many other different things that are happening around here. So what I really would love to do, you and I connected on Twitter a few months back on something very special. I know you've talked about it before, but it's really kind of interesting that you and I both had this as a catalyst so when I was a teenager and the band played on was a special movie for me, and I know you've talked about it before that it was a special movie for you, but I'd love to hear kind of what, in, you know, in terms of your upbringing, um, something personal from my side too. My mom helped raise me, my dad, you know, mom broke up when I was very young and my mom really took it on and she raised me. And so there are some corollaries between your upbringing and mine. And so I'd love to hear kind of, in thinking about what has created josh today and the the investor and the person that the father and everyone else you know everything else that you do what kind of has has you know what in your upbringing has kind of led that You know, what has really created that so far
1: well there's the story that i i tell and the story i tell myself and you know i'm sort of intellectually honest to know that the story that i tell myself may not be entirely you know 100 accurate but the but the narrative that has defined me is my parents split when i was young i was raised by my mom and my grandparents in coney island brooklyn the absence of my father uh, for me would sort of inform my presence as a husband and father. Yep. So sort of the, the uh, you know, uh, reciprocal or invert, always invert as Carl Jacobi said. And so uh, for me, it was one over my dad. It was the presence of, you know, nuclear families of friends who um, I admired or was jealous of. And uh, you know, I sort of at a young age had a chip on my shoulder for a variety of reasons. I was short. We were relatively poor compared to everybody else. I grew up in a neighborhood that was, you know, sort of a, uh, heterogeneous or hybrid between Eastern European mostly Jews and black and Latinos in Coney Island um, and so I I grew up with a chip on my shoulder years later I you know sort of coined this phrase the chips on shoulders put chips in pockets and mm-hmm. obviously you either become sort of bitter or you can become motivated and um, I think I had a very competitive streak at a young age I think part of that was having high- performing peers and part mm-hmm. of that was having a high expectation mom that drove me um, but I think I think that' sort of combination of You know, competitive spirit chip on your shoulder. Um, You know, I personally don't buy into today's zeitgeist of, you know, meditation and mindfulness and happiness. And I think all progress comes from dissatisfaction. And uh, most of the people that have achieved greatness and most of the progress that we look at happens because somebody looked around and said, geez, that sucks. Or I want to do better. Um, And oftentimes it's, you know, people thriving not um, in spite of some hardship, but because of it. Mm -hmm. So, that that's, you know, at least the story I tell myself of you know what my motivating factors were and what drove me.
0: That's awesome. Yeah, it was, you know, very similar to me is that, you know, nothing is ever gonna be given to you. You gotta go and get it. That was kind of inbreded, you know, it was kind of imprinted in my in my kind of cloth, if you will, in my fabric. Is that nothing's gonna be given to you, you gotta go and get it. And so yeah, I think um,
1: I I I think that's right. And I think um it's interesting because, you know, my, my career is venture capital and uh, I have to invest in people that are inventing the future. And oftentimes they have a conception of the world that one might consider with arrogance of the highest order. You know, this is the way that the world ought to look. And we pride ourselves that we often believe before other people understand. And so a lot of people say, well, how do you reconcile the fact that you're such an optimist, you know, investing in people inventing the future, but at the same time, you're such this sort of skeptic and cynic. And, um, I, I think the difference is this notion of optimism that can be sort of parsed two ways. You can be a complacent optimist or conditional optimist. And if you're a complacent optimist, just like you were saying, you know, you expect the world to come to you You're like a kid on Christmas Eve waiting for presents to come or on Hanukkah, you know, waiting for presents to come. And if you're a conditional optimist, you see what could be, but you go out and get it done. And either you do it through hard work and perseverance, or you do it through, you know, Tom Sawyer, like uh, controlling or manipulation of peers. Um, You know, we call that leadership in many fronts, but um, yeah, I'm definitely a conditional optimist.
0: Yeah. It's interesting because, you know, with my kids, I always teach them that, you know, they always ask me, well, you know, oh, that kid was lucky. You know, that kid, you know, was able to get this. He's so lucky. I'm like, luck is not really something. It's more about timing and being there and being ready for it. Do you agree with that?
1: Uh, well, yeah, I mean, for sure. I mean, our old cliche of, you know, uh, luck favors the prepared, but, um, uh, but, you know, look, there are people that are born lucky and, right. um, you know, sort of the classic social justice, um, conceit of, you know, the raw veil of justice of, yeah. you know, if you imagine a world in which you're going to be born tomorrow and you get to decide all the rules. And the only thing that you don't know is whether you're going to be born, you know, white or black in America or Brooklyn or Bangladesh, you know, tall, short, smart, not, you know, able-bodied, strong. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you just decide society? And, and the, the truth is, you know, for the vast majority of people, they are born on third base, you know, with bases loaded, they are born, uh, you know, when I say vast majority of people who are you know, successful. Um, and so, so luck and um, circumstances that had nothing to do with their choosing, you know, put them on this path-dependent path forward. And if you're born into that, um, and and you have no sort of appreciation for it, then you know, I, I think that's why we end up with a lot of the social injustices we have. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, you know, uh, some of the greatest entrepreneurs and the people who go and strive and achieve, you know, come from these really unfortunate circumstances. Uh, and you look some of the most, you look at some of the most famous people, you know, from iconic. Entrepreneurs or media titans like Oprah, um, you know, to even Steve Jobs. Like, if you knew their life stories, or Larry Ellison, mm-hmm. uh, you wouldn't wish it on your worst enemy. That's you know, right. but at the same time, these are sort of heroes that we hail post facto. But you know, a, a priori, you know, before all their success, these people were born in fire. I mean, they were mm-hmm. orphans. They were rejected. They were raped. They lost loved ones. It was just you know, sort of the worst of any Shakespearean tragedy that you know mm-hmm. ends up becoming sort of this great hero story.
0: And so. Again, I don't want you to go into, obviously, you've talked about this a lot, but, you know, with the movie that kind of inspired you and me, you took a much different trajectory. You, obviously, Westinghouse, and you took it really on. I kind of played around at Rockefeller for a little bit. You know, thankfully, I was able to get like a short little internship. And I realized that, in my opinion, and again, this is interesting in hindsight, 2020, if I would have been, if I would have had the mindset I have today as a 41-year-old adult, as I did as a teenager, I would have been like, dude, stop, you know, just stick with it, man. But you really took it on. You have been, you know, this has been a driving force for you. And so I'm curious in today's time, what we're seeing with a global pandemic, you know, obviously back then in the, you know, in the eighties, you know, with HIV and AIDS, you know, it took a long time to get public opinion changed. It took a long time to get policymakers to acknowledge it. Do you think that we are seeing a different cycle now that, you know, with, you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci being out there, you know, very publicly and a lot of the things that we're seeing on the CDC, do you see, you know, a a stark differential or do you see it very similarly? I kind of see it as a similarity between the 80s and now with HIV and AIDS. It seems that we're kind of trying to tuck this away with COVID. You know, do you agree with that?
1: Well, uh... At any given po- point in time, I, I feel like there are certain, um, again, sort of Shakespearean stories that play out, and the, the cast or the stage changes, but, you know, the sort of arc of the story is the same. Um, I mean, t- today we see um, uh, outrage, you know, around a few different fronts, one that is not controllable, um, right. meaning we don't have the knowledge yet. Uh, to to address it, um, yep. I mean, we have tactics to address it. You know, wear masks. Um, uh, I happen to be more optimistic about therapeutics as opposed to vaccines, but um, <clears throat> but that is a an enemy or one that we label enemy, which is you know, relatively indifferent uh, or not relatively absolutely indifferent. It, it, it only cares about spreading. Um, you know, you could argue that the meme, or the ideas uh, in ignorance or intolerance or racism are another form of virus. It's a mind virus. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's infectious. It's social. Um, and the counter to it is also, you know, infectious and social. And um, and and so, so the the sort of sad thing um, about you know the concurrent uh, sort of uh, uh, triptych or triumvirate, at the moment, you have a, a health crisis, which is the mm. COVID-driven pandemic. But you could argue that there are ten other health crises that are occurring below the surface. Um, And I'll tell you what what I think the main difference is across all three of these. You have a a social and um, injustice crisis. Um, You had a very salient, visible event that catalyzed people to take to the streets. But that is an event that is taking place dozens, if not hundreds of times a week Mm -hmm. um, against Black men and women, against uh, Muslims, against uh all kinds of people that are you know often powerless as a minority. Right. Um and so uh, and then the third is the economic. Um and uh you know depending on where you want to focus the the turn of your ire, you know, whether it's uh you know something more theoretical like, you know, Fed's abuse and monetary policy and uh, you know, gross fiscal spending, uh bigger than a neighbor policy, it's uh, you know, m- municipalities or pension funds. I mean, there's all kinds of ills that you can point to, but but that is going on on a, on, a, on a daily basis. The, mm-hmm. the difference at the moment is it's it's the centrality of the focus. And so, when everybody is focused on COVID, it is the most important thing. When everybody is focused on social injustice, it becomes the most important thing. Yep. Uh, part of the the thing that that worries me is, um, you know, a lot of people in the environmental movement talk about sustainability. You know, how do you mm-hmm. sustain something in a sense? And and how do you sustain outrage against? social injustice because outrage is what's required to get a critical mass of people to want to change something when you have a critical mass then it becomes unstoppable and then you know politicians have to look to the people and sort of in that classical you know french politician you know there go my people they're running i am their leader i must follow Mm -hmm. you you get a phenomenon where there gets change and unfortunately you see so many comparisons you know whether it's to 1919 on a pandemic 1968 on racial issues or 1929 on the economic issues Uh, of course it's not like any of those three things but um, they rhyme, and the, the commonality is the centrality of everybody's focus. The, the disturbing thing is that it was just a year ago when the centrality of focus was on women and gender That's issues right. and discrimination yeah. um, and the Me Too movement, and you saw a, a good thing in that, uh, in all of that bad, which was that there was a, a, a mass um, uh, dragnet, a, a roundup of all of these bad men. And, and mm-hmm. of course, there were extremes you know, between a Harvey Weinstein and a Lewis CK but but everybody was being you know taken out um you know t- today the attention on that i mean i was i was sort of um understandably uh surprised but surprised nonetheless to see uh, the the female entrepreneur of the wing who started this movement you know really to empower women that was carried out uh because she was insensitive uh uh and and didn't have the right social policies uh for th- things related to racial and right. and um and, and equality and so th- there's there's um, this this constant cloud and winds of change that sort of go from one movement to the next, and if, if you look back, you know today it's 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 race and it matters, yep. um, and we say never again, and and change happens, but it, it the change only happens so long as the the outrage is sustainable. And right. uh, a, a year ago, the outrage was on Me Too, and then two years ago, the outrage, if you remember, was on guns. That's right. And you had a young movement which was marching in the streets with. Um, it's just people saying enough, you know, yeah. and like, like this has to change. And, and, and then
0: it fizzles out.
1: It fizzles out. And you look at May, you had 80% increase in gun sales. You know, yeah. most of the people that were raising tons of money for anti-gun policies and, and legitimate change. And, and you had corporations putting out statements the same way that they did for Black Lives Matter. And, um, you know, all of that has abated. So so yeah. part of me cynically anticipates that in six months, the world will have moved on to a different issue. And it's just unfair. So, so to me, almost one of the great inequities is that we don't have this sort of sustainable outrage. Because if you have the sustainable outrage, that's how you get change.
0: You are talking my language. It's something that I talk, you know, at home a lot about with my wife. And, you know, we come from polar opposites on the political spectrum. And I think that's a beautiful thing because at the end of the day, we are able to be harmonious and we love each other. And we're able to obviously share our opinions in a format and unfortunately we don't do that as a country anymore and we don't do that as a people anymore um, in mass. But one of the things that we talk about a lot is this idea of fizzling out and this idea that we are all becoming kind of prone to ADHD where we go on Twitter, we go on social, you know, it's we go on TikTok now and you get that 30 seconds kind of hit and it feels good and then you move on. And it's, you know, the whole swipe left, swipe right type of movement. Um, and it's unfortunate, but I want to focus on you, um, and focus on what you guys are doing there at Lux. So where are you drawing your inspiration today?
1: But I I, I will say one thing about that. I'm always torn by these, um, um, the, the absence of nuance and, and it's very hard, uh, in the current moment to suggest that, that there is nuance, that there's gray area when issues are so clearly right or wrong, Mm -hmm. when somebody needs to be canceled or not. Um, you know, but, but the swipe right and swipe left phenomenon on the one hand, you know, is like. Uh, an indication or an indictment on on our short attention spans and you know quickly dismissing things and not judging them with you know appropriate time. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the other hand, you know I think seventy percent of of uh, or sorry sorry forty percent of um, you know new relationships sort of began online and it's an interesting phenomenon. I think a lot of people are finding love that might not have ever been and it's addressing loneliness. I, th- I think about a, a, a picture or video I saw yesterday. Where on the one hand people are outraged about drones and surveillance, um, you know, uh, being seen as instruments of a police state, and on the other hand, I saw this beautiful drone footage that zoomed out of the Pride and Black Lives Matter protest um, in Los Angeles, showing just the enormity of the people and the scale and the scope of it, which was this very poetic visual. And so, uh, you know, everything has sort of a pro and a con, and and to me. Part of the thing that has been lost in all of this is any space for nuance, and um, and almost an intolerance of it. To, to understand that, you know, people contain multitudes. That um, there are good people that are doing amazing things. That have, you know, shown forms of hatred. There are. Um, it's just it's 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 you know as the old Facebook. Or you know, status was it's complicated for a lot of things. It isn't just strictly black and white.
0: You know, it's getting on that, and then I want to dig into what you guys are doing there because it's super interesting. In my opinion, we have lost objectivity. You know, it's either it's either this way or that way. There's no kind of middle. In there, you know, you know, back in the '80s, you know, with the Reagan era. You know, there are, are people out there who were able to broker deals and were able to kind of bring some sort of a piece. And, you know, we didn't have this divisiveness and there wasn't this, you know, kind of hatred or echo chamber that we now have. And you're saying nuance, but I call it objectivity and the ability. And Charlie Munger, I think, talks about this. He doesn't really, you know. Unless he knows both sides of an opinion or both sides of an argument, he's not really going to interject himself. He wants to be able to know both sides equally, if not better than actually the the people who are making that argument. And so I don't think that we have that anymore. We've lost that ability where, yes, this is my opinion, but you have an opposing opinion and I'm going to know everything factually that I can about what is deriving that opinion. And then I'm going to be able to have a conversation with you. Do you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I, I think it's an ideal. I think, you know, as humans, we we tend to agree with people that agree with us or think like us. And, um, you know, you can name all the biases and Danny Kahneman happens to be a friend, but Danny will say that, you know, even if he wrote the books on so many of the biases, uh, he still falls for them. It's like understanding an illusion, but, you know, still falling for it. It's just our cognitive apparatus is structured for a certain way. So, yes, Munger has a, an ideal of being able to look at, you know, the other guy's argument or girl's argument and be able to argue it and understand it before, you know, making a decision. But, um, You know, that's unfortunately not the way that our operating systems really work. It takes a lot of effort to do that. Uh, That kind of effort takes patience. And Mm -hmm. increasingly, you know, the vast majority of people, um, it it is a quick dopamine hit to be entertained. Um, That's right. The great poet Kurt Cobain, you know, here we are now, entertain us. Uh, I I think it's just easier to, to get a quick hit and get a quick laugh. Um, I think it's why, you know, my my politics are very clear, but I think it's why we have the president. We do. People like to be entertained, even if they didn't want to take Trump, you know, literally or seriously. It was sort of funny at first, you know, my God, um, until it became serious. So uh, uh, it it would be great if we could all be more objective and rational, you know, but but that is the label that everybody who um, doesn't agree with you is generally, you know, um, uh, pejoratively uh, insulted as uh, they're being irrational just because you don't agree with me doesn't mean. But you know, we 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 just don't have the patience to sit and read long, nuanced arguments and mm. reflect and think. Um, things just move too quick, and particularly, you know, the mob can move very quickly. And uh, you know, people are getting canceled in in ways that are shocking. But yep. I, I'm optimistic that this will actually change, that there will be a reversion. But you know, maybe that's misplaced um, complacent optimism, and I have to be conditionally optimistic about it and you know, do
0: something. I hope you're right um and i don't think that we wake up in the morning thinking the worst obviously we're you know hopefully building a better world for our children our children's children and that obviously is part of it so i want to dive in because there's so many things that you guys are doing there so you know from a just a broad stroke one of the missions or the mantras there is that you know at lux you are pursuing counter-conventional solutions to the most vexing puzzles what are some of those puzzles today
1: well, it's typically, and it sounds a little bit sanctimonious when we say it, but we like to invest in matter that matters. Um, so, you know, it sounds a bit righteous, but we like to invest in in physical things that are affecting, um, you know, very large forests of society. So what, what would that be? Well, if you look at energy, you know, for us, um, we had a very um, non-consensus contrarian view that if you truly care about baseload, zero carbon power, you have to care about nuclear.
0: Mm-hmm. And unfortunately...
1: You know, being tribal social primates, we tend to follow, you know, the, the prominent um, voices, the prominent voices going back a decade, you know, where Al Gore and John Doerr and Vinod Khosla and famous venture capitals, they were basically promoting solar and wind and biofuels. Um, and then, you know, later you had Elon and electric cars, which is great. But um, uh, we were very bullish about nuclear. It was an area that we thought um, uh, was underinvested and had, um, uh, you know, insufficient attention. And then we looked at the biggest problem that existed, and it turned out to be what do you do with the waste? And we ended up starting a company, and got quite lucky when Japan got unlucky, and um, we sold that company for a great return for our investors. And you know, it was very, very intellectually gratifying and, and very financially rewarding. Um, you look at something like surgery, and you say, my God, you know, we have um, all of these procedures, and whether it's you know, need for organs or transplants or waiting lists, um, you know, is there an opportunity for robotic surgeons to be able to do things more efficiently? So that you could process more people, um, you know, more safely, uh, with almost digital control, and uh, and more precision and more data. And the answer was yes. And you had a giant fifty-plus billion-dollar company, Intuitive Surgical. There was white space for an opportunity for you know a, a second entrant. Um, we ended up backing the founder of Intuitive Surgical and, and in a company called Oris and that's sold to Johnson and Johnson last year for six billion dollars. Um, so you know we like doing these things that are big that can have giant outcomes that are financially rewarding, but also when you look back. Uh, I feel very proud to be able to say to my kids, you know, not that I developed or invested in some, you know, um, app that, you know, consumed their attention right. um, you know, and sought to monetize them through advertising, but, you know, we have invested in things like brain machine interfaces and robotic surgery and nuclear waste cleanup, uh, cancer saving, uh, life saving cancer drugs. And, um, you know, th- those for us feel meaningful. Yep. And so um, we like to invest in matter that matters. We like to manage money for families and endowments and institutions who in turn when we make them profits or are putting those things back into um you know missions that we uh, we care about and um it just you know it gives meaning to the work that we do
0: and so digging back into a kind of a post covid-19 world you mentioned robotics, and so I'm curious. I had a conversation with Jeff Morris Jr. the other day on the show about this. There's been this movement towards contactlessness where, you know, even Domino's Pizza, you know, look if you see their, you know, their, uh, their TV spots, they keep hyping this, and you're seeing this more and more. If you go to, you know, Walgreens or you go to some store, they keep, you know, talking about this idea of contactlessness. And so I'm curious, do you think that robotics is going to play a bigger role moving forward after our post-COVID world?
1: Well, it's interesting because we we have this dichotomy. On the one hand, the thing that we crave so much is you know human interaction, um, and uh, you know while our technologies can evolve, you know our, our emotions are are still you know based on the Savannah and wanting to be with um, you know our tribe and uh, wanting to r- rally and plot and scheme and, and be together and be with colleagues. And and so I am not of the view that we are an entirely new normal. I think that there will be a interim period where there'll be a lot of flexibility and, you know, that applies to work and schooling and, um, you know, restaurants and all kinds of stuff. But, but I think that, um, you know, in a few years and whether that's, you know, one or four, we'll look back. And, um, I think things will more closely resemble the near past than they will the far future, you know, as we might imagine, um, certain things are here to stay for sure, you know, so video conferencing and people, um, you know, um, on video when they normally wouldn't have felt comfortable, um, you know, or that's here to stay. Uh, people able to do remote work, people able to do hybrid schooling—you know that's here to stay. People able to uh, run cloud kitchens, um, you know all those things are, are here to stay. And I think it's widely understood that things that might have taken three or four or five years have been basically accelerated and pulled into the future because mm-hmm. of the crisis. Uh, uh, on the other hand, um, uh, you know, uh, contactless payment, sure. I mean, that's you know that's relatively benign. It's a extension of you know Bluetooth Low Energy or another wireless, you know, you know contact form of payment, non-contact form of payment. Um, the, the area where I actually think that um, I, I can see the technological trend and the social acceptance will be for 24 7 delivery of goods using autonomous vehicles. And so, you know, I would expect a group like Amazon or other that is running um, fleets of um, autonomous vehicles almost in bike lanes, but instead of bike lane being, you know, on the far right or left side, you're going to have a designated um, lane that, just like a bus lane, is primarily for use for autonomous vehicles that 24 7. Uh, 365 days a year are delivering, you know, drugs and groceries and packages and intelligently routing our physical atoms, just like our routers route our bits around the city. And you'll have a human inside that does the very last mile. I'm not convinced that the robots that are working on, you know, the last mile of delivery can do all the edge cases or the, the heterogeneous, um, you know, instances that are, are very hard to, to program. Right. Um, so so that to me is, is probably an area. Um, and then once you uh, have twenty four seven delivery, and you have humans that are uh, going from vehicle to door. Uh, then I think you're going to have companies like one of our companies is a company called Latch, and Latch Access lets you do contact less entry, and you can do permissioning um, in the same way that I might grant you access to a file in a Dropbox digitally. I can grant you access to my home or part of my home, um, and as long as I have accountability and trust in a choke point technologically, then um, uh, you know I will continue to use it. same reason why. I might use uber or lyft is i have accountability and a choke point if something goes wrong
0: right super interesting so another company you've talked about a lot publicly is matterport and so In this world that we're in right now, you mentioned obviously working from home. You obviously, you know, we talked about, you know, the Zoom type of nation that we've become. What role do you believe AR, VR is going to play going forward? Do you think it's, you mentioned obviously this kind of accelerant that has been poured on technology and society. Do you think, you know, companies like Matterport with the use of AR and VR are going to be a large part of that?
1: Yeah, so let's let's look at this near term, and intermediate term, and long term, and you know what I think, and in, um, in some cases what I think doesn't matter. Well, in most cases, what I think doesn't matter. Um, in the short term, uh, you know, I've been very skeptical about VR, particularly. The reason I say what I think doesn't matter is other people who do think it matters are are going to invest very significantly. Facebook, in particular, Zuck has been very clear that um, it's a major focus area. You know, they're investing tens of millions of dollars into studios and gaming and titles. Um, one would have thought, you know, critically that um, if ever there were a time for VR to take off, you know, would have been down. But uh, you know, on the other here, uh, on the other hand, I hear that uh, Quest is is crushing it, um, Oculus Quest. And so, um, uh, I still find the headsets to be a bit cumbersome and uncomfortable, yeah. and the amount of time that I'll spend in it uh, would be very low. Um, AR, I'm far more optimistic, and like any technology, I think it starts with the trivial and you know face filters and um, overlays and Snapchat and that kind of stuff. But I think it's going to become much much more sophisticated. And so, you know, Matterport is very interesting because it had a great tailwind behind it that suddenly became a spectacular one. And none of that was presage. You know, we saw the directional trend of the ability to very quickly capture three-dimensional physical spaces down to like millimeter accuracy, Mm -hmm. um, and the utility of that, whether that was for maintenance or real estate or selling homes or brokers or insurance. Um, But but with COVID, obviously, with um, brokers really unable to do showings. That's right. You've had just, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of sales now that are happening because somebody has had a Matterport scan that you can navigate every single inch of that of that home like you would, you know, playing Doom or, or uh, you know, uh, Call of Duty, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, navigating a physical space. And it's just, it's absolutely um, exceptional. So, so people have been raving about it. It's caught a viral movement. You know, one broker sees that another broker has and sort of it's become the social phenomenon. So I think that's going to become a staple and I think it's driving the commerce for real estate. But it's a very near-term thing, and I think it's going to extend itself into really interesting future applications. Um, on, on the on the long-term AR, uh, I am at the moment obsessed, really, between the decreasing gap of simulation and reality. And I don't mean that in a "are we living in a matrix?" you know, sort of philosophical question. But the observation, not a speculation, that we have two converging trends. One is a hardware trend where our ability to capture reality with ever higher resolution keeps increasing. And so, whether that's a Matterport camera that can do, you know, millimeter or centimeter scans um, that used to be, you know, sort of kludgy that are now high resolution, whether that is a satellite like Planet Lab that capture centimeter resolution from space, whether that is a new life science uh, microscope that can capture inside of cells with high resolution, whether that's a high-speed camera, just every facet that you might think about how we capture using sensors and data um, information of the real world with high fidelity, high resolution, higher than our own senses can sense it, um, is very powerful. The related trend is our ability to model. Much of that you know, came from defense and video games. Uh, the first real modeling was being able to look at the uh, trajectory of a projectile, a missile, and anticipate where it was going. But you look at the Unity and the Unreal engines that are driving video games today, and the, the resolution and the physics um, uh, uh, analogies and approximations are just insane. Their ability to model light, to um, model texture of small pebbles, um, you know, of, of physics uh, and, and and interactions of, uh, of fluids and, and solids, it's, it's just absolutely stunning. And, and you can see the path of how it just keeps getting better. The same sort of progression we saw from going from like 240p to 480 to 720 to 1080p to 4k to 8k. So um, when you take those two trends, the ability to capture reality better, and the ability to model reality better, and then you have this computational layer between the two, where you're constantly doing this memory prediction framework, which I think is basically, you know, how we Uh, consciousness works in humans, machines are constantly iterating between what they're sensing in the real world and a prediction that's being made um, and just going back and forth between the two in a super powerful way that I think is going to let us navigate and predict um, the world around us in ways that we never have.
0: I agree. And this is a phenomenon that I've witnessed too. Obviously, we were talking before the recording that we are getting out of our prison here in the city and we're going to the woods and trying to find a place to do that. You know, obviously we were in New York and under lockdowns and so we had to do a lot of those virtual kind of tours and so i agree with you that the short term you know that's definitely a big one so before we finish up i want to get your kind of opinions on this so i see you guys are also investors in anchorage and Blockstack, and so i'm kind of i would love to be able to hear your take on digital assets you know today especially in light of you know on the unrecent you know kind of unprecedented activity from the fed that many have speculated you know from paul Tudor jones to other family offices that it could have some potential destructive value to fiat around the world here and uh, around the world. So any any takes on what the state of the state of digital assets are?
1: Well, th- those two investments in particular were really bets on people, um, people who we thought were smart, had a differentiated view, were not like hypesters or hucksters. Um, you know, and the jury is out, out long term, but it's sort of a, a speculative investment on, uh, on on an area with high conviction bet on people. Um, as, as relates to cryptocurrencies themselves or as an alternative to fiat currency, you know, I see, I see a lot of merit in it, um, in that uh, I think there's going to be a bifurcation, I sort of speculated um, before all of this craziness happened, going back into fall of last year, uh, that, that I thought it was going to be an Occupy the Fed uh, movement. Oh, wow. um, and I thought that it would be driven by Trump. And I thought it would be driven by Trump uh, in response to uh, Powell maybe being intransigent, maybe not lowering rates or being accommodating to Trump's wishes for you know a booming stock market, um, and and that he would start to throw the Fed under the bus. And most people, really in the in the masses and particularly Trump followers, not really understanding what the Fed does, mm-hmm. um, would just see these you know the columns and the symbols of Washington, you know, um, uh, institutional power and you know holding the people down and. And uh, employment go, uh, unemployment going up, and, and blaming them, and 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 so if that kind of thing happened, instead of an Occupy Wall Street, that Trump turned the turret of attention towards Occupy Fed, then you would have two camps. You would have an old school camp and a new school camp. The old school camp would basically be, uh, you know, non fiat currency of gold, and um, you know, there's really smart coaching people that can say, you know, gold is nothing but a shiny piece of metal, and other people that say, you know, it's great store value in an otherwise fiat currency world. The other end would be the neo, um, which would be young people that are basically saying. Uh, you know, um, Bitcoin or other uh, alternative cryptocurrencies uh, as a store of value, and um, uh, I think both make logical sense in the fact that money itself is obviously an intersubjective view, and the only mm-hmm. thing that really matters is what do other people believe that other people believe that other people believe at in of, and um, if you you know can speculate about what other people are speculating, about, you know it's sort of the infinite beauty contest. Um, then you can take a measure of a of a of a of a currency. Uh, obviously, any particular sovereign. You know, their currency fluctuates with um, people's perception of uh, their military might, their ability to pay their indebtedness, um, the measure of their imports and exports, the growth of their economy, the stability of their society. And, um, uh, you know, but but long term, you know, whether it's some combination of gold, a basket of currencies, some reconfiguration of digital currencies, Bitcoin, I, I still am bullish in a Buffett-like way about the U.S., um, notwithstanding all of the very... A1 newspaper stories related to everything from the pandemic to social injustice to economic crisis, because I still think compared to every other country that we've got a system that allows, you know, a guy like me to come from a poor mom in Coney Island, um, you know, and a guy like you in Queens. And um, uh, and I just think that over time, it's a very long arc, but we're seeing more and more people included with more freedoms and more opportunities. And I just think if we can bend that arc, you know, steeper and quicker, um a lot more people would be better off
0: i love it and i also talk about the arcs as well too it's a a great way to think about how we're progressing as a society and uh, progressing as an economy too so i love that before i let you go um one quick thing that we like to do before the end And I'm sure you can go on about this for hours because I know you're very well read. Uh, But any book or books that you've read recently that really inspired or something that you just had to tell everyone else around you, your family, your friends about? And then I know this can also be another few hours, but any music that you're digging on right now? Because I know you love music.
1: Uh, Well, probably the book that I've been uh, talking about the most um, is uh, Burn In um, from uh, PW Pw Singer and August Cole. Um, They're their prior, um, uh, book ghost fleet, I thought was a great sort of almost pre black mirror combination of, um, near-term prognostications of what would happen technologically with an amazing story and great protagonist. And so this new one is really about AI and robotics and surveillance and, um, espionage and counterterrorism, And, uh, it's just, it's awesome. So, I uh, highly recommend that. Um, and then in terms of music, uh, I mean, I, I really listen to everything. I have a particular affinity for hip hop and heavy metal. So I'd say the new Run the Jewels, Run the Jewels 4, is just just almost amazingly prescient in the lyrics and the tone, um, you know, coming out uh, right before Minneapolis and, or coming out after, but written before, and um, and, and George Floyd. So I, I, I think that was just um, awesome. And nice. then, um, uh, I don't know, anybody that has, you know, never listened to, deftones or mars Bolt or at the drive-in I just oh, think deftones. Tones.
0: yeah love deftones i was also gonna say rage against the machine because that's been a big one you know obviously with some of the
1: yeah i mean they're supposed to you know come back actually zach de la Roque is on the new uh run the jewels four, so you can get a, a little taste of of their lead singer you know with, nice. with these incredible social rappers awesome
0: josh Great thank you so much time with you, man yeah, and we'll make sure that everyone has the uh, the location to find you guys. This was Josh Wolf, a very special conversation. Thank you, Josh, for joining us. Stay safe, stay healthy, stay positive. Thank you for coming on. Take See care. Thanks for listening in to Basslayer. If you like the show and all the different guests that we've brought on, please give a like and subscribe on Apple or Spotify or wherever you do listen to the podcast. Also, if you want to have a conversation or reach out to me, you can reach me out on Twitter at David J. Nage. And let's talk there. Or also you can find me on LinkedIn. And I look forward to having great conversations with you all about digital assets.